Okay. Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hey, my little sweetheart. How's my man? Good. I'm good. I was actually watching a documentary this week. Um, it's a Beatles documentary. I think it's called uh-huh. Get Back. It's like a three-part series where each episode is like three hours. And it delves into how they made their live Get Back album um, uh-huh. and what they were dealing with. And it just, they, because what happened was they were trying to do like a TV show or a movie and they had this tons of footage. And in the end, they never used it until finally um, Peter Jackson, the guy who made The Lord of the Rings in the early 2000s, uh-huh. he, um, he took all the film that they made and he turned it into a documentary. It's really oh. cool. So is this documentary, is this, um, where is it available? Uh, you get on Disney Plus. Oh, okay. I do not have this Disney Plus, not so like spending extra money on it. Yeah, you can see <laughs> clips on YouTube and whatnot. Like, I mean, it's it very interesting. Where like, one of the parts was like, I think was it Paul McCartney was was talking about like the the group's dynamics were they were you you start seeing the issues they were having with each other. It wasn't like any malice or anything like that. It's just that they were all so amazingly talented on their own. And then coming together and like creating music, it was just very, it got difficult to a point where a lot of them were, were like George Harrison wanted to go like make a solo album and he wasn't able to. And like you see, they even have it recorded where it gets to a point where like um, they're recording and playing music and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like lunchtime. So I was like, okay, it's lunch. All right, see ya. And George Harrison goes, okay, bye, I'm leaving. And they're like, okay, he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm done. And he gets up and he just starts walking to the manager. It's like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be here. I'm out of here. I'm done. And he walks out the door. And like, basically, oh, that was like the moment that George Harrison left the Beatles. Oh my gosh. Just to pick up and leave in the middle of a recording session like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Because what happened was, was, we got to a point where like, Paul was the main one, at least in this documentary, the way it shows it, uh-huh. Paul was like the main ringleader who was in charge of everything uh-huh. john lennon was the one who was like getting his like act together and like getting stuff done and like paul and john would like work off of each other and create really good music but then george harrison would have all these great amazing ideas and they'd it always be like you know a, a, a side piece it wouldn't really be focused so george harrison uh-huh. being overshadowed and that he wasn't able to create the music that he wants, you know, because he has his own vision of music, you know, and that that's where it, it gets to this point. And like, so Paul McCartney, he said, he's like, he's like, he, he predicted, he said, the media is going to blame Yoko Ono for the Beatles breaking up, but that's not true. Oh, okay. It's because of that, all of us. Yeah, because that, that's when I, um, and when I did break up, uh, when they did break up that there was uh you know, you're right, the media did do that. The media like put out this rumor that it was because of Yoko Ono. Yeah. That they broke up. But um, I remember um I used I saw on a um uh when the Beatles were very, very popular so recording, you could buy, of course, uh, music books of their music with the chords and you know the lyrics yeah. and the melody. And every single song there was um 
Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Yeah. All the all the songs. Basically the cooperation of those of uh, those two. What what was the first Beatles song you heard? I'm trying to think. Um I wanna hold your hand. That, <laughs> That's so, the first one. It's I, I'm very I want to pick your brain because I know you you were in the Beatlemania craze. You were obsessed with them. You saw the movies, you well, I'll tell you the truth. I I liked them very much, but I mean, I wasn't really obsessed with them because the, all my friends were so. I decided to join the bandwagon. You know, like, <laughs> when we, when um when the when their when their first movie, I think Hard Day's Light, came to Baltimore. It was the premiere in Baltimore, and of course, you know, there were all these uh, teenagers that were there. The movie theater was packed, and they were all jumping and screaming. And I didn't. I really wasn't into that, but hey, everybody's jumping and screaming and I want to be, you know, teenagers, you know how the you know, 13, 14 year old kids think they want to be part of the crowd. So I started jumping and screaming too. <laughs> so it's, it's funny because like watching the documentary, it was like one giant decade long group school project that they were doing, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I just think it's so funny with like, the music that they turned out, it was there. It was very short, like two, three minutes long. I think the total amount of all of Beatles songs put together all in a row would only accumulate to ten hours. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Well, the I don't then late. Well, of course, later on they came out. Um, it was interesting how their music evolved, especially when they came out with the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club uh, album. Yeah. That was when they branched out into the psychedelic mm. type um, music. So, what was your favorite Beatles uh, Beatles uh, song then? Oh gosh, <sighs> trying to think. Uh, oh, when I was well, when I was a teenager, I think when I was like 13, 14 years old. Uh, uh, Michelle, I liked. It. I was very. It's a very pretty slow moving song. Hmm. Also at that at that time I was dating a guy named Michael who's uh, he took he took French and so his uh, French name was Michel. Oh okay. <laughs> You're just, just all in your own little like romance world. <laughs> you know, yes, 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 yes. So when it came to I guess I I I'm watching this documentary and I'm just so enthralled at such a piece mm-hmm. of history. And that, like, you lived through it and you actually, like, enjoyed part of it, I would say. Um, you know, were you, were you a, like, you said you were, you were a tag-along fan, is what you were saying? Um, I was, I'm the type of person in general who, when it comes to, I don't know, I, <clears throat> rock, I enjoyed rock music, but... I was really a fan of classical music, of the Baltimore mm-hmm. Symphony. Uh, the conductors at that time that were conducting the Baltimore Symphony, I would uh, read newspaper articles about them. I would go to their concerts, that type of thing. I was, I was quite a nerd. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> but, you, but you didn't care for Elvis, though. Well, the funny thing is none of the Jewish kids cared for Elvis when he first came out because he was more like a... You know, like a Prestigoisha greaser. That's how we felt about him. But then later on, when he um, 
when he when he got older and he gained some weight and he was less greasy, then, <laughs> more the Jewish, then the Jewish kids started to like him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like you're too pristine. Sorry, you have to, you have to be more of a Nebuchadnezzar for us to appreciate you. Oh God, that's funny. That is funny. What, so besides the Beatles and Elvis, what rock were you into? Simon and Garfunkel. Okay, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Um, trying to think what else. Like I said, I was mostly into classical music. Mm. My favorite was um, my favorite was I listened to all nine Beethoven symphonies that were conducted by Tuscanini and the NBC Orchestra. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, uh, Pikesville Library had a classical section of you know record albums, mm-hmm. and you could take them out. And almost every week, especially during the summertime, I was there. I was at Pikesville Library at least once a week getting out the classical albums. And they had the entire series of all Beethoven nine symphonies conducted by Tuscanini and the NBC Orchestra. It's amazing they had That was my favorite. I would think everybody would be like picking them up like left and right. Now people have returned them. People were very honest. They They returned their... They, re- they returned their things to the like today also. Come on, yeah, you yeah. can get you can get um, videos out of the library too, and most people are pretty honest and return them. Yeah, no, I was I was was talking about that. I was saying like you know, so many people would be, you know, borrowing it. It would take forever for you to get in line in the queues, so 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 you could actually go ahead and. Nobody was interested in classical music, <laughs> <laughs> but I was. <laughs> <laughs> Would you believe I met a woman? Uh, matter of fact, um, I went to, uh, we were in a carpool with this woman. She, her daughter and I went to Peabody together. Mm-hmm. And so we were in a carpool and when her mother, her mother was driving one time and we were, I was talking about Tuscanini and she said she had a chance to meet him. Her father was a violinist in the NBC orchestra. Oh, wow. And she had a chance to meet Tuscanini and she said, you know, really, very nice man. He loved mm-hmm. kids. That's adorable. He, ta- he was talking to her and like, you know, it's not me, big conductor. I mean, this is the world's greatest conductor. And you were, you know, just a you know, very nice, ordinary man. And um, he, was, he was very olive complexioned. Interesting. Yeah. If he remembers that about him, there has very rich, dark olive complexion about him. But um, he was known, though, for... Um, I don't know the way conductors are today, but mm. probably the way the world is going, he would never have gotten away today with the way he behaved in those days. In those days, I mean, I was listening to a um, biography and they played a, like a segment of one of his rehearsals with the NBC orchestra and he just stops and he yells, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, he took his music very seriously, and but he never you he never had a piece of music in front of him. He had mm. all of the music memorized. Wow! And when you see pictures of him conducting, you don't see any music in front of him. He is conducting totally from memory, and uh, oh boy, he had he he had like they, you know the Italians are known for being uh, like very fiery, uh, temperamental mm-hmm. people. Evidently, he was. There was a story about this one trumpeter who I played a wrong note. He got so mad, he yelled at the guy and yelled at the guy and yelled at the guy. And finally at the end, fired him. So get out, leave, you're fired. 
and the trumpeter, you know, packed up his stuff and he was going out of the concert hall and he turned around and he yelled Tuscanini, nuts to you. And nuts Tuscanini, to you. Yeah, Tuscanini says to him, I'm sorry, it's too late for apologies. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I, I was surprised he wouldn't say something else. Like you <laughs> effing, whatever. Uh, people were a little more, I don't know. Uh, it's more was, posh, there was, I guess. There was, there was less... Um, Pub, it was less cursing that went on actually. I mean, behind the scenes, when you when you hear interviews from some of these older actors and actresses that you know performed during the you know 30s and 40s, uh, there was um yeah, there was plenty of uh, real cursing that went on behind the scenes, but they tried to keep it, you know, public. They tried, yeah, they tried to keep it away from the public. Uh, well, of course, you know, FCC has their has their laws, and um, um and when I was uh, when I was growing up, oh, if any radio announcer said even the word damn mm. or hell, oh my God, they, they could be fired. The FCC could, could, throw them, could throw them off the air. Well, you wow. know, you hear the story about, you know, Gone with the Wind, the famous story. Yeah. About yeah. And Butler's you... last night and how there were, some, there were some states that bleeped it out or something, or there were some places that wouldn't show the movie because of that. And it, like, it made a total furor, you know, nationwide that he actually said, you know, that he, didn't give a damn, and yeah, gosh, I use that word. Yeah, it's 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 funny you talk about like uh, people losing their cool or whatnot. Uh, I was I, I'm on a Beatles kick right now. I'm telling you. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I was watching a few John Lennon interviews where he and like someone did a YouTube clip of all these parts of like John Lennon working with other people and him just getting really pissed off. <laughs> like just getting upset and like at one point he was like being interviewed by like some some newscaster and he's like getting flustered because he's trying to explain something and, and he's like getting very fired up and whatnot and just it's so funny um but i i was actually i was going to ask you um do you remember when john Lennon got shot oh you bet i did yeah yeah, your um, your father and I were like, wow, we we couldn't get. We were listening to the radio, and it was like, oh my gosh, we just we just um, oh my god, it's like we could not believe it. It was it was like the pre- it was like it was like the president of the United States getting assassinated. Really, I am not kidding. Yep, that's how uh, um, you know, it really affect it affected a lot of people. It's such a you know such an artist with a such a popular. Artist that that could, uh, you know, get shot like that. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, it's like um, I was. Funny guy, I was thinking about that yesterday. Really? About famous movie actors and actresses that had been murdered by, say, stalkers. Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're that high profile of a person, you should really have a better security detail about yourself like i was thinking about like sharon tate oh yes yeah the charles manson you know the the murderers um you know sharon tate murders i mean if you're that high profile of an individual you you should have such a security detail around your house to make sure that no kooks you know i don't know what it was i guess years ago actors and actresses you know, had to draw a, like a very, very thin line 
between their, you know, being secluded, protecting themselves, and also wanting to make themselves available to their fans. But I was thinking also there was, um, oh, I forgot her name. About, what was it, about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago or so, there was this up and coming um, movie actress, uh, brunette lady, young lady, and um, some guy managed to, I think he hired a private detective to try to find out where she lived. And he managed to get to her and he shot her. He was like this crazy guy. Yeah. And I was thinking about her. I thought, my God, if she, you know, if you're this up and coming, it's, it led to, evidently, it led to a, the passing of a law in California um, preventing private investigators from finding, from, uh, finding information about high profile people, like movie actors and actresses, to prevent, you know, future events like this. Wow, it just- I her name was Serena was her name? Serena? Serena was her name, Serena? I forgot who she, I forgot who she was. I was also thinking like, you know, Marilyn Monroe. I mean, you know, again, a high profile, and, you know, the speculation that, you know, it was not a drug overdose, that uh, she was, um, that she was actually murdered. But there's also speculation that it might it might have been CIA because uh, evidently she knew too much. Yeah. That type of thing. It's just, I don't know, it just, it's like, I always thinking about so many different people, so many different artists that have made such an impact and then their deaths being so brutal. And it's just like the 27 Club. Are you heard about that? No, what's the 27 Club? 27 Club, it's a lot of artists that by the, at the age of 27, they die either mm-hmm. by suicide or drug overdose or, you know, whatever, but it's at the age of 27. Mm-hmm. And it's just mm-hmm. all sorts of famous artists that by the time they're 27 years old, they're dead. Mm. You know? Boy. I think, uh, I know there's Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix, uh, Kurt Cobain. Um, I'm trying to a lot, a lot, think. A lot of those were drug overdoses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was a lot of drug overdoses. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, you know, <clears throat> it's just, you know, that, do you really have to be a tortured artist to make good work? <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was taking music history, um, that topic actually came up. Interesting. Because the interesting thing about the Baroque composers, like Bach, Telemann, They had no Valdi. money? No, 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 they had money. They, were, they did no, very well. My, you, they're, they're, they're Baroque. Uh, oh, <laughs> ouch, ouch. Uh, oh, please get somebody else to write your material. Don't give up your day job. Uh, I try not to. All right, <laughs> but, um, but they were, um, they, they had a 
they were very level-headed. Haydn, um, except the, well, the possible exceptional, well, Mozart wasn't exactly Baroque. Mozart was going into the classical era. Haydn, Haydn and Mozart were like the bridge between mm-hmm. Baroque and classical. But um, Haydn, Bach, uh, like I said, you know, the Vivaldi, Telemann, um, your, um, you, you know, um, Scarlatti, your Baroque composers were very level-headed, sane, um, uh, moral individuals. Many, you know, married family men. Well, Vivaldi was a priest, and they were they were not suffering artists at all. They weren't crazy. They weren't poor. They, um, you know, Haydn especially, you know, they uh, they did very they did very well for themselves. And then you get into the to the classic era. And uh, I mean, uh, poor Beethoven was, um, you know, was known for being very, very temperamental. He was like a, well, he suffered a lot, of course, you know, suffering artist. Um, yeah. Mozart was, uh, Mo- Mozart was really in many respects off the wall. There are all sorts of stories about, uh, yeah, <laughs> about uh, the one story about one particular opera singer that wouldn't go on unless he, Unless uh, she had relations with him before the performance, which he obliged. You know? <laughs> yeah, BDE. Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was um, quite known for being quite a, a character. And then uh, Franz, and then um, and then you have like uh, Chopin. Oh God, Chopin! He was he was a sad, suffering artist. He couldn't he could never settle down. He could never really um, he could never really. They said that his relationships. Very seldom we lasted after a couple months, and um, you know he had um he uh, he had you know quite a bit of problems in uh, Franz Liszt. With uh, said you know to say he was also uh, he also had some you know he was very very much in love with this woman who was um, royalty, and uh, she was trying to get a divorce from her husband and. The uh, Vatican would not, they were Catholics, the Vatican would not give her a divorce. And he finally, um, as a result of being brokenhearted, not being able to, you know, to marry her, he just went ahead and became a priest at the end of his life. Oh, wow. He gave, he gave up on the whole idea of romance. He just said, forget it, and decided he became, he became a religious Catholic, very, very religious Catholic, and of course became a priest. Uh, then there was Wagner, who was totally crazy. Yeah, he was an anti-Semite, he, right? He no, he was hard, but he he didn't suffer though. He was he 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 had he had a lot of money and uh, he lived very well, but uh, it, oh, he was really uh, very na- very nasty guy. Uh, like I said, uh, irrationally anti-Semitic. I probably got, I think I talked about one of the programs that I had to write a um a report. I do a, on his uh, his book on conducting at the time. Mm-hmm. And in the in the book in this conducting book, he would, it was crazy. He would all of a sudden go into an anti-Semitic rant, like totally irrationally, in the middle of discussing some sort of musical concept that was so unrelated to, to you know to anything with dealing with the Jews or religion or whatever. All of a sudden, he would just break into this total horrible, irrational, anti-Semitic rant mm. for no reason. So um, then there was, I was, thinking, I was thinking about George Gershwin talking about like 
famous um, artist dying young. Yeah, George Gershwin, I think, was only 30 or 31. He died of a, uh, he died of a um, cancerous brain tumor. Hmm. And you're talking about like the early 1930s, like mid-1930s, and um, I forgot when he lived. It was, I think he died like during the 1930s. I mean, there was nothing, even today, never. There's not too, you know, there's not a lot you can do for uh, brain cancer. It's, it's, it's more hopeful. But in those days, there was absolutely nothing that could be done. Uh, I have a question. So going back to, you were saying that when, when John Lennon got shot, you and Tati were very, you, 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 it felt like the president got shot. Yeah, um, a lot of people felt that way. Yeah. Did, did you ever listen to any of Tati's music? What do you mean? Did you ever listen to any of, your, any of Tati's music? What do you mean records. Tati's music? Did he, oh, I thought, you said Tati's music. I thought, I don't know Tati composed music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, I love it. You're hilarious. Let's put it this way. There was one time he was in the shower and I heard him screaming. And he was singing. No, that's just Tati's uh, yeah, a bad he, singer. Yeah, I thought he felt like it. I knocked at the door very frantically. You know, Salmon, Salmon, are you okay? Salmon, are you okay? And he opened the door and said to me, I was singing. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a dead cat. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm talking about like his music. Like, you know, he, he was Grateful like, Dead. Uh, the, no, I, I don't think he liked the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, that was it. No, the Grateful Dead was his. Oh, he loved the Grateful Dead. That was really that was he his didn't have any of his albums. Man. At least I don't see anything. What? I thought I thought he had Grateful Dead albums. No. Well, it's so yeah. funny because the Grateful Dead, when uh -huh. I when I first heard about the Grateful Dead, I'm like, oh, it must be some heavy metal band. Da -da -da. I go and listen to it. It's like very slow, very mellow music, very like music just to chill to, just to relax. I'm like, this isn't the Grateful Dead. He, he used to criticize me when I would listen to classical music. He goes, what do you think that junk for? That's just garbage. He goes, ah, Grateful Dead. Now that's real music. <laughs> it's great. Grateful Dead's very, uh, it's just not my taste. But I liked, <laughs> I liked his uh, Moody Blues. Moody Blues were good. Well, I, I like Moody Blues too. And the funny really? thing is, when you spoke to like people in my, when I was a teenager, Moody Blues hit the market and became popular. Yeah. Would you believe friends of mine who, ew, I hate classical music, can't see classical music, would tell me, oh, these Moody Blues, you've got to listen to the music. It's so beautiful. It's, it's just like classical music. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they liked about it. They liked about it that they used elements of classical music. They used like a beautiful, they had like elements. their background was a, was a beautiful orchestra. The same people that, you know, it's, it's like the, there's a joke about people say, I hate classical music, I hate classical music. So why do you have 1812 Overture as your telephone ringer? <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was classical music. <laughs> I, I, I tried to get into classical music. I really tried. You, know, you have no idea. I would listen to 91.5. You know, uh -huh. the, the classical music station of Baltimore. And I would listen to these stations and try to really get into it and really listen to it. And uh -huh. I just couldn't. I couldn't get into it. It just didn't move me. It, I didn't care for it. I That's did okay. not care for it. You know, so I'll tell you the truth. I don't, um, I don't like all classical music myself. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's quite a bit of classical music. You know, actually, um, one of my music professors in college didn't like, even like the term classical music. He really didn't. Um, mm. He said he likes to call it instead what you would call serious music. Mm. As opposed every, to, you know, classical, really, because if you think about classical, classical music, quote unquote, the classical era 
was from about the time of, um, oh, you would say the time of Napoleon, about, the 1800, about 1800 to about maybe um, 1840s, 1850s, something like that. Then that, then that became like the Romantic era. So it's just real, at the, when you talk about real classical music, you're talking about real, you know, I'm talking about art or music that was, uh, that was composed or produced from during that time. And so that's why he said he, uh, he preferred the idea of like, quote unquote, serious music. But I, I think any good music is serious music. Uh, that's what I like about, like, I like Moody Blues. I like the band, you mm -hmm. know, I, I listen to, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, the Foo Fighters, Nirvana, like all these people, they take their music very seriously. Mm -hmm. It's just, the problem is that with classical music, it's too stiff. They have to go by the rules so strongly. They're not letting themselves loose and trying to find themselves and refine themselves. They have like a list of rules. They abide by those rules. They have mm -hmm. mathematical equations. They abide by those mathematical equations and they go over it and over it and over it to get this complexity and things. But it's like, you know, going to, mm -hmm. go, going to an art museum and sometimes seeing art, you could tell it's good, thoughtful art and other stuff is just junk. But artists mm -hmm. will tell you this big, long story about why it's so important. But the reality <laughs> is the layman's yeah. looking at it. And it's like, it's not interesting. It's boring. <laughs> it's like, but in some of the modern art where you see, it's like a, uh, you see like um, uh, this white background with some red dot. It's painted in the middle. And that's supposed to, and that, that particular painting like sold for like thousands of dollars because it was done by some um, op artist like, years ago and it's like hey my two-year-old can paint like this too yeah that, and that that's also the other thing with 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 art is that it, like it can get pretentious if you're not humble and level-headed and grounded it can get really pretentious really quick like I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before or I have it probably wasn't passing but I had like this professor from Micah that went to Morgan State and like taught us for a semester of architecture and he was the most pretentious self-righteous self-centered person I've ever met in my entire life mm -hmm. and like he was just this guy trying to get us to be, be all philosophical and Morgan State's a very practical university we, we don't mm -hmm. get into fluff we don't do mm -hmm. fluff and so we're trying to do this fluff piece and I'm trying to understand it try to figure him out and during this time like he's, he's coming up with these other ideas and then he just gets more pretentious about his his attitude and he just gets really mean and he like starts like failing all the kids and like just mm. not really explaining himself and like he comes in with this like little stupid hat with his stupid scarf and like and his stupid coffee just just talking about like whatever thing there is we're trying to get this idea out of him like what do you want from us what are you trying to accomplish and he's just not you know <laughs> he's just not there he's so he's, what so what happened eventually i mean he started failing students so what did they what was it was this an architecture class or was this yeah it was it was an architecture it was a studio class so that means that that we do uh -huh. all this this we do a lot of you know more artistic part of architecture in it and it just so got to you guys to really like think out of the box or something or like, yeah really you know. think outside of the box 
And it's just, he wasn't very encouraging. And mm. he wasn't letting us grow. He was just kind of making us sink or swim. And a lot of kids like dropped the class and left the class. Some fit like just mm-hmm. went completely off and stopped doing architecture after him. I stayed mm. in. I, I unfortunately, I got a C as my only C I ever got in, in college. Mm. Um, I'm surprised the students didn't go to the, the, the rest of the they did. students didn't go to the, it's what the dean of students do. Well, he was what gone after a semester, didn't come back. Good. It was good, it. That was it. He was good. done. I don't think he ever came very back. Good. Unfortunately, though, you still got the. Were you one of? The, let's put it this way: Were you one of the fortunate ones that you at least got a C out of the course? Yeah, I got a C out of the course. I got a C out of the course. I mean, I, by the end, uh-huh. I was figuring it out. But it, in college, it was the most frustrating thing. It was always at the end. Did everything come together? Did I finally figure out what I needed to do? And by that time, it was just like a little too little, too late. You know, uh-huh. but like it's fine. Mm-hmm. I. I got it. I, my GPA, I think, it was a three point four. Uh-huh. Um, it was a pretty decent. It's just, you know, it is what it is. It just wasn't something I would say that, like, I don't know. I, I always think about the fact that I went to Morgan, and you know, the choices I made were just, just very practical financial choices. You know, I wanted to go mm-hmm. in Pratt. I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to be that architecture scene in New York city and live my life there. But like 2008 hit and, you know, the recession hit really hard and I wasn't going to risk, you know, all this stuff that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't visually see myself, you know, with, with, with very little financial backing. Um, I just didn't see it as a possibility. Um mm-hmm. And I just saw a lot of my time being wasted and that if I wanted to really use my expertise and, and, and delve into things, I felt like Baltimore was the better, better ticket. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, whatever. It, it might've been, it, pro- it probably was. I mean, I've, um, I made a similar decision and then later found out what, um, I had a chance to go to Goucher. I got accepted to Goucher. Okay. And they gave, they gave me a partial scholarship. And which meant I would have had to work or borrow the money to meet the rest of the tuition. On the other hand, if I'd gone to ta- going to Towson, was totally free. I mean, I didn't have to pay anything. This was like a total full scholarship, everything paid, books, fees, you name it. It was all paid. Yeah. And I thought about it and I thought, you know what? I don't want to start off life in debt, which, which would have happened. I would have started off, it would have been, well, looking back now, I would have been $5,000 in debt, which, you know, today, $5,000, are you kidding you? That's nothing. But yeah. in those days, it was something. And I, and then later on, I, um, I found out that Towson had the better library. There were students from Goucher that were coming to Towson to use our library. I found out later that there were some professors the taught at both schools. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but later on, I met people in the workforce who were working the same jobs I was. And that's and they, and they graduated Gatra, I graduated Towson, and we were both earning the same amount and <clears throat> working the same jobs. And, um, yeah. I, I, you know, I, it's so funny because I see that too. I see, like, at, when I was at Morgan, you know, people from Maryland, they cross pollinated all the time. Maryland and Morgan cross-pollinated 
Morgan always got the got the um, in more ways than one. <laughs> Morgan always got the short end of the stick, but like Marilyn and Morgan always cross pollinated. And when I started going into the work labor force, I started meeting other people from Morgan, and I started seeing people from Maryland. And I started seeing people from like Pratt and all these other big places, and we were all working the same place, getting paid the same. You know, uh-huh. the only thing I have is that like, I guess I I. I really went ahead and kind of glorified New York in my head where it's just this, I just, I think it's the most beautiful city in America to really just, if you really want to appreciate people and architecture and exploring those ideas, go to New York. You're not going to find it in Baltimore. You're not going to find it in Maryland. And I've always wanted to explore that. And I never got the real chance to do that. Well, well, tell me, do you do you feel this? Do you still feel the same way about New York, despite all the hundred percent, like like you know all the um, crime and like a couple yeah. was a couple couple but years it, ago what they burned down Fifth Avenue. Something doesn't like matter. That. It's it that's that's part of of people and nature. Like it's it's just how just part of life. It's just how people are. And New York, you get the most intense part of it. I feel it's all about survival. Mm-hmm. It's a very <laughs> Cities are all about like survival, trying to handle like human interaction. That's why you go to you go out to the country if you don't want to deal with people. But the real Ooh. place in this world is to see and deal with people. So you go to the cities. I think I think the more intense the city, the more vibrant it is. So I always felt the same way in that I'm glad I lived in New York for four years. Mm-hmm. I was I'm very grateful for that. I found that living in a city like New York, taking the subway having to adjust to a very fast-moving, um, intense city like that, it, it was really good for me. I don't know. I guess, it, in a way, it kind of freed me. Because, um, you know, small-town girl from Baltimore, um, always, you know, living with her parents, never really getting out on my own. And then to finally get out on my own and live in... Uh, live in Brooklyn and having to handle New York City. I guess it, it toughened me up in a certain way. And it got me to have to handle, basically to have to handle the pressures of life. Yeah. And I didn't have mommy and daddy there. I wasn't living at home. I had to support myself. And, and then years later, you know, when your sister um, was living in New York when she gave birth to her first child and second child, and I went up there to help her and I had to take, I had to take the subway like for a few days in a row and bring her yeah. things while she was in the hospital. I was so grateful that I'd spent four years in New York. I thought, boy, I said, if oh, I Ima? were handling- Ima? Yeah? T- time, time is running out, unfortunately. Well, we got like 10 seconds okay. left. That's it. Then okay. I, was, right. I, was just, I was just very grateful that the subway you know, didn't phase me. If I were handling the subway for the first time, I would have gone crazy. Yeah. All right, I love you. Love you, honey. Take care. Have a great job. Us. You, you too. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook at Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I know you would like it, and my mother would too.